Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 237 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by William Neal, Eric Bennett, and Alex Noriega for a casual yet informative conversation that is filled with tidbits of wisdom that I think any landscape and nature photographer can get something out of. The main focus of our conversation was around collaboration and community, which are central components to the success of Eric Bennett's new book, Conversations with Nature. We also talked about how to support photographers that you admire, curation of our photography and the role it plays in standing out, creative blocks and how to overcome them, legacy in photography, and a lot more. Before we jump in, I wanted to thank one of our newest patrons, Marsha Kirschbaum. Thank you so much for helping to support this podcast financially on Patreon. I really appreciate you and everyone else who has stepped up to pay for something that provides them value. You rock. Okay, let's get to the show. Welcome. Welcome to the panel podcast with Eric Bennett, Alex Noriega, and William Neal. We have all kinds of fun topics we're going to discuss today in a lighthearted and fun manner because Eric Bennett is drinking lots of beer. I'm just kidding. No, it's going to be a great time. So for the seven people on earth who don't know who our guests are, can we quickly go around the table and introduce ourselves, starting with Eric? Thanks, Matt. I'm Eric Bennett. I'm a full-time nature photographer like these other two gentlemen. And uh, I use my photography to teach people the value that wilderness has in its pure and unaltered state. Brilliant. Uh, Alex? I'm Alex Noriega. I'm also a full-time landscape photographer. I travel full-time in a in a trailer with my girlfriend around the U.S. And uh, I suppose I also use my photography for that purpose, but I just don't have a mission statement about it. So Eric's got it more thought out. Yeah, I'm a little bit jealous. That that was very polished. It sounds nice. Yeah. He's been working on his interview skills. There. Yeah, do you, do you consult for that? Like, can can people ask you for their advice on how to do that for themselves? I just got tired of always trying to like think of an introduction for myself. It's better to have like a little sound bite, you know. <clears throat> oh, so you don't you don't actually want to portray wilderness in its unaltered I, state it's just for podcasts. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's not true. It's just uh, I got the wording figured out and I had to stick with it instead of stumbling. Nice. Nice. All right. Well, I stumble. What about, what about <laughs> what about you, Bill? I am William Neal. I'm a photographer based in Yosemite for the last uh, 44 years, and I've been uh, self-employed at this business since '84. And I photograph because it makes me feel good, and it has the added benefits of being able to share it with other people. And hopefully, when they see my photographs, they feel good and putting some positive beauty out there in the world, which is uh, desperately needed. Especially right now. I was born in 1990, so it's pretty impressive that Bill has images better than mine. Than that, yeah, exactly. That are like, they hold up today. You could post it today and it'd still blow up on social media. It's um, it's weird to, to kind of look back so far, but it's also satisfying. So stick at it, guys. You'll get there. I think I'm, I'm more than double your age, Eric, I think, maybe. Yeah, I'm 30. Yeah. 34. 67. 42. Not double mine. Nope. Yeah, I think <laughs> right now seeing Bill, he looks like what I'll look like in like 30 years, I think. 
Actually, right. yeah, you have the similar, the long hair pulled back. Yeah, if you could just get a pair of glasses there, it could be game over. I yeah, I'm sure my, my eyes will deteriorate, so. I, I do miss my red hair, but I keep posting photographs of me with my massive red beard and, and uh, just imagine that it's red again. <laughs> anyway. they, they, sell, they sell products for that, I think. That's what my wife and my daughter keep telling me. Yeah, you've already got the pre the pre blonde or the white, you know. You need that as a base for any time. Got that blank canvas. So well, yeah. Since my wife's from India and henna is a pretty big thing in India, that's their threat is to to get me henna up. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, I'm sure we could banter like this for like seven hours, and that probably would be pretty fun. But um, and maybe we can do that later. But I wanted to dive right into the heart of the conversation for today. You know, right behind me is Eric's book, uh, Conversations with Nature. And I know that both uh, you, Bill, and, and Alex, you were uh, involved in. Oh, and Eric, and now Alex is, is showing it off as well, his copy. And it's downstairs. Yeah, you're, sorry, we didn't give you the. We didn't it's in the downstairs the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's right by my sofa, which is my desk. You know, when you're 67. And also you're, your bathroom. Yeah, and I have taken quite a few naps there. So first of all, let me say, Eric, your book is a tour de force. It is really impressive. It's uh, excellent. I think if I were to, I would say that it's probably up there and, you know, as a gold standard for what people should looking should be looking to do with their own work. So I applaud you for your success. Thank you. I mean, I worked really hard on it. Just like even without the setbacks and the nightmare situation that you guys know I had, I worked super hard on it to get it like as perfect as possible just because I knew it'd be worth it putting something out there. I didn't want my name to be on something that I was going to be ashamed of later on or not be completely stoked on 10, 20, 30 years from now. But um, so yeah, like I tried to make it as, as best as I could, but I've still been super shocked uh, and surprised by like the overwhelmingly positive feedback that I've gotten on it. Like it's so great to see that so many people are enjoying it. That's been really validating for me, especially after everything I went through for it. No doubt. Yeah. And not to rehash that, but I don't know you've talked about it on my podcast and David Johnston's podcast and yeah, basically publishing went really horrible. You had like what three, three print runs and it still didn't come out. Five. Five. And so basically you had to switch publishers and yeah, so it was a big nightmare. Yeah. So like the worst case scenario. Yeah. I had never anticipated that it would go that wrong. Even when I was thinking of like the worst case scenario and I was about to invest all my money, like didn't even cross my mind that that would happen. Yeah. Well, well perseverance paid off. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Thanks guys. Fantastic. So I wanted to, uh, First here from Bill and then Alex as to why each of you decided uh, to get involved in Eric's book project. Bill, I, I believe you've uh, written the foreword. Um, correct, correct. And, yeah, and so yeah. I'd love to hear about that. It's one of the positive things about social media. I'm pretty sure we connected through uh, Instagram, I believe, and started, you know, I was enjoying what I saw. You know, when, when you start to see this photographs that catch your attention and, and you start to pick up on who's who's who, you know, you start to see a, um, a pattern and sometimes you see things being posted that are um, 
uneven, you know, some great stuff, some not so great stuff. And, you know, it's just kind of throwing things against the wall. And then, then you see people that are really attentive to curating. They're, they're uh, putting their work out there. And, you know, so I was impressed. And so we started communicating. And that just led to uh, Eric uh, sending me an early version of it that I got to go through. And, and that uh, convinced me, you know, once I saw that, that, that I'd be happy to contribute to it. And it's important to me as having so much fun talking about how dang old I am, um, you know, to see, you know, the younger photographers coming up with that kind of genuine approach and uh, paying attention to both quality technically and aesthetically and really pushing themselves to, to create uh, meaningful work. And that's something that, you know, with all the, especially social media and all the stuff that gets out there, YouTube, you know, it's takes some sifting to get through. And, and um, so I've, I've seen this both with Alex and Eric, just seeing a very um, dedicated approach and uh, disciplined approach. I wasn't that disciplined. I mean, I, my books, my first books had all kinds of compromises. In, in them. So I really admire uh, Eric's uh, perseverance. Like I said, one to do, create such a beautiful book and then to, have the uh, the standards in mind to to not let it be less than it than he wanted, and I think that's the power. One, the power of self publishing, and and the power of some of the uh, you know the ways we can get published these days. For me, it was you know you have to go through a curator. So curating is like a book publisher or you know a gallery director or something where people that see work in a gallery like Ansel Adams gallery there, you know, there's somebody, you know, assessing the work. And so what you see there is curated and any gallery and any publisher is going to curate what gets out there. And so now there's, there's so much, so many ways to get um, work out there. That's uh, worth seeing in, in a very you know powerful way. Yeah. What about for you, Alex? What was your, what was your motivation and drive to, to be a part of this, I mean, how many how many twenty dollar bills did, did Eric have to slip you to be involved in this thing? Uh, he's my bro, he's my buddy. That was it. <laughs> no, but uh, <laughs> he <laughs> he. I mean, I echo what Bill said that Eric is one of the people that's really thinking hard about his work, and uh, he's got a very thoughtful approach, as evidenced by the book. And um, I just want to support great work i mean i i feel like it's getting harder and harder to find people like eric that i mean especially like bill was saying with social media these days the way that uh people hop on trends and just kind of copy each other ad nauseum until until it spirals out of control uh it's great to see someone like eric with like he started relatively recently like what seven years ago or something and 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 already putting out a product of this caliber in a portfolio that's clearly this thoughtful and and unique um definitely have to support that but it wasn't all that easy to get me to actually do it was it eric (laughs) i mean i i said i would but then how many months did it take me to write these few paragraphs i had to poke you a few times yeah it's it's I'm just terrible. I mean, I've written like one article in the last two or three years, even though I have a lot more to say, it's just so hard for me to start writing. So the fact that I even did this at all is 
saying something about Eric, I think, more than it is about me. Most of the time when I write an article, it's just like that, Alex. It's it's painful, and it you know I've written other articles, and I don't want to don't want to repeat myself. But um, uh, Eric's uh, work, I, it just came right out. I actually was quite surprised how how easily it came forward. So that's um, it came pretty quick to you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think you sent me it like maybe three days after I asked you. I was really surprised. Yeah. Well, I got to sit sit with the work uh, lap. Unfortunately, on a laptop rather than the actual book, but. That was enough. And one thing I wanted to say too, just in far, as far as the environmental side, my degrees in environmental conservation from Boulder, and and uh, that was in the mid '70s. And there's a lot of things that are, you know, have changed, and maybe some things have improved, and some things have regressed, depending who's president. And it's um, it's important to see, you know, the combination of the environmental point of view. And using environmental, uh, using photographs for my environmental purpose, Ansel was a very, very much an activist. He he got up in the morning and wrote letters, as as you know, he was on the board of the Sierra Club, and um, he was very active that way from from early in his career. He went off to before Kings Canyon was a national park. He was off in in D.C. with a portfolio, showing his prints around. I think in twenties, thirties. I can't remember the, the date, but um, you know, that's, that's what we have to keep doing. Yeah. Keep, yeah. I, was, I was curious, Bill is, was the, um, the conservation message that Eric had woven throughout his book, was that something that, that resonated with you and, and helped kind of convince you to, to be a part of it? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just right up my alley. It's, um, uh, maybe stated a little more clearly and strongly than I've ever done it, I think. So, so yeah, I was, um, Totally in tune with it. Can I just, I'm, I'm looking at the front of the book here and it says, Eric Bennett, forward by William Neal. So introductions aren't on the cover, are they? What's the difference between a forward and an introduction? That was my designer's call. I didn't design the text. I mean, I don't think that I, I didn't should even, be on the cover. I, I didn't have, have your introduction wait. when I actually made the book either. That came later, remember? You, That's true. You, you didn't ask us if we wanted to be on the cover, did you? <laughs> Well, no, I had to put your name on the cover with a reputation no. like yours. I got to oh, milk that as much as possible. So that's what it was. Oh, Another couple of decades and I'll be cover worthy. Gotcha. <laughs> you start putting too many names on the cover and nobody knows who's it by. Or yeah, like this, the, the name that's way bigger than all the other ones. We kind of have to call it out. Don't worry, Alex. You'll, <clears throat> I'll put you on the cover of my book and then you can just like write like two sentences. Getting like, ahead of yourself there, maybe. I don't this, know. This book is This book is <laughs> okay. Alex and Maria. That's for the back cover, inside oh, cover, maybe. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 fine. <laughs> There's a couple of good photos in here. All right. Well, so you know, one of the things that I really love about the landscape photography community is how we tend to rally behind projects and photographers that we admire. Uh, how important is this particular aspect of our community to each of you? And I'm gonna start off with you eric well i um since i'm a fan of nature i love seeing great photographs of nature that you know even somebody like me that spends enormous amounts of t amounts of time outside i can still come across an image that shows me something brand new that i've never seen before that really excites me and i'm not really on social media just to promote myself just to get my work out there i'm on there mainly to 
connect with other photographers. Like luckily I connected with Alex and Bill and many other photographers that hopefully I can collaborate with on future projects, just like these guys. And, uh, I love connecting with other photographers, seeing what they think, becoming friends with them, and also just sharing amazing work that I find with people that follow me and that enjoy my work. And on my website, I've had a page called Inspiration, where I have a list of photographers that it pretty much stays the same, but sometimes I swap names out or I add more names of you know the photographers whose work I'm drawing inspiration from that I look at regularly because... When people come to my website, it's not just about them connecting with my work. Um, I'm not really sharing things so that people think more highly of myself or to promote myself. Really, I'm just trying to promote nature. So if there are other photographers doing amazing work that could also benefit people and strengthen their relationship and connection with nature, I love to share that. And I think it's equally beneficial. So that's why I've always had a place on my website for photographers that I admire to support them and uh, benefit people that follow my work. And then also at the end of my book, I have a whole page of acknowledgments uh, mentioning those photographers and other authors and people that um, are also doing great things in the same kind of field, you know, trying to promote the preservation of wilderness. So that's basically why I do it. I'm not really trying to ever promote myself. I'm trying to promote nature and I'm trying to help people fall in love with nature. So I don't care if it's through my work or someone else's work. It's all the same to me. Well, one thing I heard you say on David's podcast that I thought was really in, insightful, and I've heard a couple of my other friends say something similar to that effect, is that uh, when you when you created the book, you were much more concerned with the opinion of your fellow photographers than you were with the general public. And I that really resonated with me because I personally would much rather get, you know, comments from my friends who I deeply admire and whose work I aspire to, to meet that level than just random people, thousands of random people on Instagram. So it was, can t- tell me a little bit about how that viewpoint developed uh, or helped develop the, the, the book and how you were approaching creating it. Well, you know, if I want to impress my peers, the bar gets it comes up a lot higher, you know, because they're producing amazing work. So, um, I mean, we see it all the time, photographs that maybe, I don't want to diss anybody's artwork, but maybe they're not very tasteful or they're technically not done very well. Or the, center, still column, get, the center column was <laughs> fully raised. Way right? up. Yep. But they still get thousands of likes, you know, and it's like photographers that have experience, they probably have a different opinion than the general public that is going crazy about this photograph for whatever reason. So when you're trying to please people like that, like your peers, um, especially Alex and Bill, having their names on my book, I had a responsibility to respect their reputation as well. Like I don't want to put out something that is going to be embarrassing for them. That's going to make them regret like being a part of it. Uh, I just have tremendous respect for both of them. So I wanted them to feel proud of having their names on it as well. So I just knew I couldn't cut any corners. I never really had like a limit, like a price limit. I just was going to spend whatever I needed to, um, to have it done right. I ended up having to pay twice since I had to redo it and I'm still trying to get that money back. But even if I don't, it's still worth it because I would have been so embarrassed with the very first print. If I had to, um, release that first version of the book, I would have like hated myself forever. And I would have felt so bad for Alex and Bill too, to have their names on there and 
I just, uh, I mean, the nice thing is a lot of my peers, they've been sharing my book, like one of the greatest photographers of our time, Hans Strand, like he said really nice things about it. I didn't, he bought the book and everything. Like I didn't send it to him. I didn't ask him to say that. Just seeing him going out of his way to buy it and then also share it on his social media and everything was just amazing. And I mean, I, I, I don't even feel like I deserve that. But I know it definitely wouldn't have happened had I not put so much attention to detail and tried to make every single part of it from my imagery to the actual production of the book as best as possible. Yeah, definitely. I what about for I, Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I put out, uh, I, I try to share work that inspires me uh, and share it on social media, Facebook, and, and I'm, often there are people that nobody's ever heard of or... Uh, there's a guy in, in New England, John Wozniak, who's a fabulous photographer, who's about 80 and he's, his health is failing. And he was an early pioneer in digital printing and an amazing large format photographer. And, uh, other people like that, where I really like sharing, uh, you know, what I, what I like in terms of helping to promote a book uh, for, um, for the networking of, say, just for, for Eric's book all of us that were sharing that the book is out and, you know, it's coming and be ready and it's going to be great. And I think, you know, because we already saw it, uh, that really, you know, people know if I'm saying it's, it's good, hopefully that has some weight to it. And that, you know, other people see it and, you know, lots of other people take a closer look just by, you know, putting different names out there. Like we do with a lot of us do with stories on Instagram. Mm-hmm. You know, I keep seeing great stuff that, that, that I get excited about and I want to share it. My uh, personal belief or approach in photography has always been like, I haven't really tried to learn how to like do marketing or SEO or anything like that. My approach has always just been this belief that if I make something the best I possibly can and I put it out there, it's going to market itself because people are going to want to talk about it. They're going to want to share it. And it's been so validating to see my book organically being marketed because people are sharing it because they genuinely want to like i haven't asked anybody like hey can you please put this on your story or anything like that um the only people were alex and bill since they were part of the book i asked them like hey once it comes out if you can help me promote it i would really appreciate that but everybody else has just been completely organic and that's a super amazing feeling because like i don't have to push it i just put it out there and now it's pushing itself and it kind of has this life of its own that is you know, it's, it's marketing itself just because of its reputation that it has earned. Yeah, and that's it's powerful that you've been able to uh, get to the point very quickly where, you know, you weren't worrying about the marketing so much and just, you know, just stay genuine. This is what I do and this is what I think is my important work. So I think that it's great that your book is organically marketing itself because that's also always been my approach is just to kind of let the work speak for itself in whatever form that is. Um, I know that I've done a little promotion here and there where necessary, like workshops and and tutorials, but I really feel like an organically built uh, fan base or following is way more valuable. And and you're going to get that if you, aren't relentlessly pushing your work, but just letting your work connect with the people that it connects with. And I think it's awesome if those people happen to be photographers, because I mean, if you're a photographer's photographer, then you are, you know, your work is worthy in the eyes of 
of the best people to judge it. Like, I don't care what someone off the street thinks about my work, really, but I definitely care what you three think about it. So, yeah, I think I think that's great to be a photographer's photographer, to be like kind of just organically running the whole thing. Like, you just put it out there and let it grow legs because it's good, not because you pushed it. Well, and I think I like the word organic, but I think a, an even better word is authentic. Hmm. Yeah. You know? Like, it's not like Eric's paying us to promote his book. It's because we actually really like it. Like, if he would have showed me his book last fall and I was like, yeah, it's not that good, bro. I probably wouldn't have, you know, mentioned anything about it. But it it impressed me so much that I was like, yes, I have to help promote this because it's that good. You know? There is sort of this mentality, I think, on on social media. Since you mentioned uh, lifting other people up, like, just that everyone should follow everyone back and, and share everything and like everything equally. And like, I really, it, none of this would mean anything if you just liked everything and shared everything indiscriminately. Like it, I think it's better to be authentic and really only do that when you really like the person or the work or both ideally. So. Right. And it doesn't, it doesn't make you a, a mean person or a bad person or whatever. Like you're just placing value on your opinion. <laughs> Yeah. And I think like the art world is like the one place where it's really appropriate to be biased. Like I think bias is what makes art awesome. Certain people really love a certain piece. Other people don't. So like it makes it that more meaningful to the people that actually do connect with it instead of it just being cookie cutter vanilla stuff. That's for everybody. I was just going to say like there's you don't make great art by just liking everything that's ever existed. Like you have to have preferences and biases and in order to even have a consistent vision, let alone a good one. Like, I think you really need to know what you want to do as much as you want to know, or as much as you know what you don't want to do, you know, like what you want to avoid. So, yeah. When we put out genuine work and we're talking about Eric's work here, I think it, you know, it just comes through and you can tell you're not doing it for uh, likes or money and, and people respond to that. And I know from, from my history, you know, I've, I've made some pretty substantial compromises just in the early days. There wasn't all this social media and, and kind of my social media was a line of posters that was sold all over the place. And it was, it was lucrative and it got my name out there. And there was, you know, that there were some compromises in the work. You know, I, I was, I started out more as a stock photographer in a way. And I had, uh, uh, segments that I felt like my work that went in the gallery was, you know, my very best work. And I, I really tried to market only my best work, you know, but I, I wanted to keep making a living at it. And so I did things that, that were, um, very helpful for that. And it kept me going and, and helped support my family. And those were important things back then. And, and uh, I'm kind of je- jealous actually, you know, to just take the shortcut straight to the, the top, you know, it's like, uh, I don't really regret anything I did, but it was just a process of getting um, and car- car- uh, separating out you know, the commercial from the, the best work. But my whole theory in marketing for a long time, which is what all of you guys are doing, is is putting the the most personal work out there, not the most commercial work out there. And that's an easy thing to slip into, especially you know back before social media was, you know, people were putting down money for it, like a publishing contract or something and um, you know now it's a little different but um 
I really like, I mean, I love what Eric did and, and what keeps coming in my mind. This is a tangent, I'm afraid, Matt, but um, that is okay. There has to be, I wanted to do this for a long time. So there needs to be a, a series of books that say maybe in the, it's similar to my retrospective book and Eric's book. And I've been bugging Alex a little bit about when his book is coming. I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, but you know how the, the, not everybody will know about this, but the, there's a couple of small publishers in England, Triple Kite published my, um, retrospective book and they were a small uh, side business for these the guys doing it but they, the, the curation of it was very good they had a very diverse body of work and and that was a really neat small publishing venture that it gave photographers that wouldn't otherwise have a voice a voice it wasn't it didn't have to go through you know viking press in new york or something um and there's another publisher doing some nice things in in uh, England now, and it's just not. There's nothing like that over here. Yeah, is that Kozu? Kozu, correct. Yeah. And um, I'm hoping that you know the success like Eric's will kind of breed some more in that format. I'm behind that. Yeah, I think the I think for a lot of people the 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 bar of entry is just the financial cost, you know. And I think you can defer some of that with pre-orders and and things of that nature. But I think that's what I'm guessing that's what keeps a lot of people out of the game. <laughs> yeah, because like doing an ebook or something that's just purely digital, there's no overhead. So you don't run the risk. But um, I ended up making an ebook afterwards just because my book wasn't done yet and I didn't feel like publishing another book on top of that. And uh, that was cool. It worked for that. But the reason I really wanted to make this book a physical book was just because of the impact that it has when you hold it and you look at the images printed. I've always felt like the print is really the final product. Even if you're a film photographer or a digital photographer, you should definitely print your favorite images and see them printed because holding them in physical form bigger than your computer screen even is such an amazing experience like being able to touch and feel it and i felt like that would have such a it would make my message with the book so much stronger um i felt that it was it was worth doing that just because the presentation was a whole different experience that i felt was much more impactful oh and it i feel like actual prints on the wall like it's a very limited experience in that you know someone might only be able to afford a single print if any at all and they're it's more expensive than a book and in a book you can present more than one idea more than one image whole collections or bodies of work and not only that but for an affordable price and still in like a tangible final uh, true form if you will like I, I feel like you can just hand someone a book and they get it and it doesn't there's so much standing in the way of putting someone in front of prints, you know, like I love prints, but how many prints can you really sell in this day and age and how many people will ever see your work in print versus how many online, like the book is the next best way to get physical work in someone's hands. And I, yeah. I love the idea and it's more intimate too. You know, it's not about making it as big as possible. It's about you know, connecting with it more and going slower. I think. I think Matt touched on something about, uh, the expense, and I think uh, pre-orders uh, is is a you know Kickstarter type of way of you know getting something off the ground um, that I think has worked very well. I know Triple Kite in England did that, and when we 
launched my book, you know, it easily easily paid for the printing. It actually got things bogged down because the publisher was so excited about that he, he expanded the size and then the printer couldn't make a slip case for the this the, the extra uh, dimension he gave to the book and it took forever. It couldn't didn't get it out by Christmas and was it this one? Uh, no, it was the. <laughs> That Got was, all your books in front of that me. That was here. a long time ago. I didn't reap any benefits from that. I've gotten wiser since then. But it was, yeah, it's a cool book. But that was in the early 90s. But so I think that that opens a lot of doors to people that wouldn't otherwise um, be able to afford it. And, and you really have the, the potential of just, you know, either not running it until you reach the, the printing cost. And, you know, I look at what, um, you know, Eric's book costs to print and, and feel pretty confident, you know, I can pre-sell it and cover that. Yeah, for my book, just to put it in, per, in perspective for people that might have no idea, like how much it costs to make a book, um, I only needed 200 pre-orders to be able to pay it off and then start making a profit from then. And I got those 200 pre-orders really fast. So I think... If you have a decent sized audience, I mean, I published it myself because I felt like if I used a publisher, uh, obviously they would take a large cut of the profits and I felt like they would be marketing it to basically the same audience that I already have. So I just decided to pay for it out of pocket. Fortunately, I had that money to to put up for that, but um, I decided it was better just to do the marketing myself or whatever to my audience that was most likely the same and get 100% of the profits since it's coming out of my pocket. But yeah, it was only 200 orders that I would need to pay it off. And that happened like no sweat. So how many did you, nowadays. how many did you do? 500 thousand? The whole order. Yeah. It was, it ended up being 800. 800. Cool. Yeah. Nice. Well, Alex, going back to what you, something you had said earlier about the tangibleness of a book and just seeing the print and all that. One of the other things I like about books is that it becomes a conversation piece that can also present an idea like, 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 in Eric's case, you know, he's talking about conservation and, and these types of climates and mountains and deserts and forests and things yeah, you like can, that. You can put your philosophy or any idea you want along with it, whereas a print, you know, it's not always going to have the placard next to it. So, and, um, yeah, really. I know you've, you've been to Sarah and Ron's house in Ridgeway and yeah. they have tons of photo books and it, it just becomes Including, a really... yes. It just becomes a really fun process of looking through their books and, and like, you just, it just sparks a lot of conversation. It's jealousy inspiring really to see their shelves. Like I don't have that much room in the trailer, but also ones that are out of print and I can't even get anymore. Like I saw Alex Nail's book there and and then I messaged Alex, like, how can I get this? He's like, if I come to Scotland, he'll give me one. (laughs) So, but, uh, yeah, yeah, you can't buy that anymore, but I saw it and I was, wow. Great collection there, Ron and Sarah. You yeah. have no idea. When I worked at Ansel's Gallery in the 1980s, I was the book buyer. So you know, <laughs> one for me, one for the store kind of thing. And yeah, One for the books. store. Well, I would buy the, you know, I'd order two books and one would go on the shelf and one would come home. I'd buy it. So um, the only danger I, I caution you with is now I, I want to downsize and I, I, don't, I can't carry them with me. You know, I have... A couple hundred books at least. Wow. So uh, yeah. come come here before I move and I'll start handing out books. 
And uh, that's another point circling back to your original question, like how come I support other photographers? You know, why do I enjoy doing that? It's not a zero sum game. Like it's not like if I show someone Alex's work, they're going to unfollow me and then go follow him. Like he's going to replace me. Or if I release a book and Alex releases a book, people are most likely likely going to buy both of them. It's not like they're going to have to choose one or the other. Alex and I both make tutorial videos, but we've never felt like we're in competition because actually a lot of people that buy my videos say they bought Alex's too and probably vice versa. Like people that are fans of photography, they're going to see the value that individual photographers have because their work is personal and everybody offers something a little bit different and unique that you can only get from them. It's not like there's only one photographer to follow that does everything that you want to see. So I've never seen it as a competition. There's absolutely no self-harm in sharing the work of other photographers that you admire. It's not going to make you look worse. Um, Well, maybe in my case, like with Bill and these awesome photographers that I share. But uh, I mean, people aren't really comparing it to see who's better. It's not a competition. People just want to follow as much great work as they they can. So um, I've always seen it as just it's only beneficial for everybody. I call it visual literacy. So some, you know, some people don't want to look at other people's photographs with photo celibacy, and and I advocate photo literacy. So you know, you know what you've taken. You know, if I if I go back to Yosemite Valley and I'm standing in front of Half Dome, I I know if I've done that composition before, and and then I've looked at a million photographs of Half Dome. I'm I'm kind of trying not to trip over, you know, something redundant. Well, how can I twist this around and find find a new way of doing? Um, right. How can you put your put your personal um, touch into it? Would the opposite of photo celibacy be photo promiscuity? <laughs> exactly. Yes. So that's what you're advocating for. Get you on the record here, Bill. I'm photo <laughs> literacy. Okay. That's as far as I'm going. <laughs> Well, you you heard it here. Alex is all for promise promiscuity. So, <laughs> no, I agree with Eric that uh, yeah, there's no competition. Like people come and buy my tutorial video because of my specific work, not to learn how to use Photoshop. They can learn that anywhere, you know. Yeah. So like I, yeah, I'm not worried about sharing other people. I think it's great. Well, one of the things uh, you guys already talked talked a little bit about earlier is this idea of curation, and I know that. For I know Alex, you talk a lot about curating. I know David Thompson talks about a lot about curating. I think Bill, you teach uh, personalized workshops about helping people curate their work. Eric, you know, you've spoken a lot about curation, and so you know, I think books like Eric's and also a lot of you know your books, Bill, they offer a way to selectively curate our images around themes. And, you know, it requires a great deal of restraint and focus to get it right that I personally don't have yet. Um, I want to focus our conversation on this idea of curation because I think each of you have a unique approach. And um, I was hoping you could kind of describe the importance of curation and and how you approach it. Kick Kick it off with Alex. I see curation or the ability to curate maybe as my greatest asset as a photographer because I cannot tell you the sheer number of photographs I've made that are absolute failures or fall below the bar that I've set. Um, it's, it's ridiculous how much bad work I make, but 
hopefully you don't see it because I have a very stringent, uh, I guess, bar of quality that I've set for myself, at least in my, own, in my own eyes. Yeah, very stringent criteria for, for images that I show. And part of that is um, not wanting to show too many like images that are that basically are saying the same thing, or maybe even are the exact same subject. And Bill probably has some other thoughts on this that he'll get into because I know he likes to. You like to show various takes on the same subject, but the way that I see it is that I'm just diluting my work if I include anything that's saying the same thing but is worse. Uh, and I've actually had Eric help me curate galleries in the past. By galleries, I mean just collections of work that I've put out. And, you know, I have like two photos of backlit trees, for example, and he just says, I really only need the one and I should not include the other. I'm like, but I like both. And are they different enough? Like, this is the stuff that I, that I ruminate over. Like, this is why it takes me so long to release work. In addition to the time processing, it is just deciding what I'm actually going to put out there because I don't want to dilute myself. I, I want you to remember the photo and not be like, oh yeah, you had like a bunch of photos of that one tree. I want you to like remember the title of of the one photo I showed you. You know, I want you to remember the definitive work. So that's that's how I see curation's role in my own photography, I guess. But to be fair, Alex, I learned that from you like <laughs> when you have two or three kind of versions of the same scene or subject matter, even it could be completely different scenes, but it's kind of the same idea. Mm -hmm. Why not just use the best one? Because the rest is really just fluff and it kind of actually takes away from it because that best version is less impactful because not just standing on its own, it's diluted by this other stuff that takes up mental space when you're looking through a gallery as well. Yeah. Mental space in the viewer, like they're not, going to remember all 50 of your similar images but they might remember one like the but then there's the flip side of that which i'm sure bill is waiting to jump in on that is like a complete uh idea like presenting a complete idea in in multiple different ways like for example the leaf on the cover of your book like how many leaves in oil shots do you have you have a whole gallery of like 50 of them right but I still remember this one because at least it's gotten more airtime, so to speak. It's been in front of my eyes more and it seems more unique. Like it kind of stands out. Well, I think that I talk a lot about context editing. So there can be, you know, a sequence in a book. It's not quite the same as a sequence in a uh, online gallery uh, or if you're hanging an exhibit, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's far less images. You're putting up 10 or 15 images instead of 50 images in an online portfolio. So, uh, you know, sequencing is part of that too, but generally the, the context is important to consider. So, you know, if you're putting up, um, uh, you know, 20, 30 images in an online gallery and, and the two backlit images you're talking about are, uh, you know, if you really feel that they're of pretty equal quality, you know, like you said, you're attached to both of them. You know, you you can mitigate that just by changing your sequence. You put them I, next to each other, you're comparing them. You put them yeah. far apart, you know, yeah. then it's not as apparent. So it's, it's just an editing skill. I separate them generally, but then I really only push the one that I think is a little better because that's like the most definitive version of this thing that I'm saying, that whatever it was with that shot, you know? 
Yeah, and I also think like the element of surprise is very powerful. Like when you're looking through someone's gallery, then an image pops up mm-hmm. and you're like, whoa, I wasn't expecting this. But if you had seen like a worse version of that same scene or subject matter before, you lose that element of surprise once you get to that image, you know, instead of just having it by itself and just, you know, smacking you out of nowhere. Or even worse than that, they see the worst version and that's all they ever see. That's right. that's actually my greatest fear with putting out <laughs> subpar work. And I know that I should probably loosen up a little, but because uh, I let some things stay forever in my archives that are actually pretty good i would later find out um but yeah what if they only ever saw the inferior version and never like attention is finite like i want to present the best version of myself as a photographer and if anyone thinks that i'm a good photographer it's because i'm a good curator like i really don't think i'm that great of a photographer i might be good at selecting my best work you know so well that's something that that i've written about and and taught for a while uh I have a book coming out next year called Portfolio Development, and it's basically, you know, how to edit better. And when I, I taught field workshops for about 15 years, and I and my family I started a family, I, I didn't teach so much. And, and I would, um, uh, through those field workshops, people would come back and come take another class, and I'd see what they, they'd done. I, and I, I started to notice that I didn't see improvement because they were they were scattered in their process. They would go on a trip. Now I have pictures of Acadia. Now I have pictures of Yosemite, and it's, it's very disorganized. And they did. I didn't have. I couldn't see how I was helping them, and they couldn't see how where they were. So I worked for a company called Better Photo online uh, uh, teaching site that was very very good. And I I wrote a course, eight week course of how to edit curate if you will. so you know it starts having somebody send in a whole body of work uh you know just send, send me everything you like and then we start to pick out themes it's waterfalls or it's alpine meadows or it's just tight shots of mountain peaks whatever it is you know I, they would by looking at their work they'd see those trends and then you know we would pick something out for them to focus on and they could start editing for it they could start uh, shooting for it and I made them find something nearby to photograph because I wanted them to work with their editing in the computer. But also, once they saw where they were, here's this group of Alpine Meadow shots. I'm going to try to uh, uh, improve that, build upon that, add depth to that. And so that's uh, was the best kind of teaching I've ever done because people were actually, one, they had to f- photograph around their home and they got more involved with their own environment appreciating it, which is a great benefit. And then they could see how they they were improving. And uh, through the editing, like Alex was saying, you're just um, making a selection process and, and adding a little bit and winnowing it down. And then you have your, you know, a strong body of work. But I also make talking about curating, I talk to people about how they title their work, how they, uh, how they focus the theme. So like if I'm doing intentional camera motion images and I call it impressions of light. That's that's a pretty vague set of words, but you start to see the images, you know, it's uh you know, it's a homage to impressionism painting and and it gives people an idea of what the work's about without really pinning it down to anything, you know, hard and, and fast like it's trees or beaches or you know any particular subject. So it becomes a, a very 
personal statement through that editing editing process. You know, what do you really love to shoot and dig in and, and build upon that, whether it's the canyons in the southwest or or Matt climbing all these peaks, you know, and starting to put, you know, all the all the cool pictures from the tops of peaks together. Some you know, where it starts to kind of it's not a broad shotgun approach. It's a, it's more of a Yeah, thing. it's not it's not everything you've ever pointed your camera at. It's what you are deciding is best and most important to be showing. And a lot of people don't know what they have. Oh, I didn't realize I really focused on that. And I just photograph what's in front of me. And, you know, after a few years, you know, for me, after 10 or 20 years, it's like, oh, God, I'm really doing a lot of that. I, I got to uh, come up with some yeah. uh, title for it and start putting them into collections in Lightroom and, and see if it goes somewhere. That's why that's why my work is organized by year on my website because it used to be by biome, like you know, forests, deserts, and then the desert one would just be so much bigger than everything else. It would be a chore to wade through it. It's like I, I only realized later. I, I'm in my twelfth year now of shooting, that maybe a decade of nature, and uh, I only realize now like what. I've focused on over the years because it's never been with uh, with a particular theme in mind. I've never been shooting to develop a portfolio of dune shots. I just look back and I'm like, oh, well, I guess now I have 30 dune shots. Now I have a collection. You know, it's just right. It's not like you went out over the years. You didn't go out thinking like, oh, I'm going to be the dune guy. Like I'm just going to shoot dunes and I'm not going to shoot anything else. Like things just kind of appear on their own. Different themes, dunes, trees, probably dunes and trees mostly, but. Badlands. I mean, I've I've started assembling collections, and, and I'm surprised because I didn't intend for these to be cohesive at all. I, I look at every photograph as its own, like standing on its own, really not thinking about other photos when I'm making them. But then, through my preferences and and whatever has taken my imagination over the years, I just end up forming collections anyway. Yeah, it's like a natural curation that happens just by shooting what you personally connect with. Like you're just going to avoid certain things that you're not super thrilled about and you're going to focus more on things that really call out to you and speak to you personally. And that's going to cut out a lot of things just by doing that. But I have a lot of outliers too, things that I can't really categorize that maybe that would be beneficial to think a little bit about fleshing those out, like Bill was saying. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't, really uh, focus on what what they're passionate about and, and if they discover it then they can you know narrow down things quite a bit it's giving themselves permission to not do what they see everybody else doing I've had so many students out in, in Yosemite and and uh, we go photograph El Cap and Half Dome and everything and then we photograph ripples in the river and abstract shots and and um, you know they take them home and they tell me well they're their wife was wondering what I was doing there. And, and, and I, you know, I kind of give them permission to do the abstracts, basically. Yeah, let's then end up often having more time doing the intimate landscapes or more abstract sort of photographs. And I might be in trouble with their wives or something because, you know, where's happening? What the hell? You know, yeah, they went all the way to Yosemite and spent all this money and then they just shot some ice in, in a puddle on the shore. Right. Yeah. Ice. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. Alex and I were photographing the edge of the Merced with people all bent over on L cap right in front of us and everybody's photographing the ice. At the I feet. love to see that. That was fun. 
You know, it's interesting you kind of started to bring this up, Bill, but I think oftentimes what can influence this is um, the motivation of the photographer, whether it's driven intrinsically or externally. I know that just speaking for myself and the way that I curate my images or I organize my images, sometimes it's more based on kind of the sellability of the print in terms of what people might be looking for. And so that changes how you organize the work and think about what you capture in the field. Um, obviously, I don't just do that, but I think that can, I think that can influence either positively or negatively, probably more negatively. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on kind of the influence of those external factors on people's curation. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know if you were talking to Bill specifically. Yeah, anyone. Yeah. yeah. I just. Uh, they say that those who can't do teach, but I think that's complete bullshit in photography because those who teach, like if you're, if your goal is to appeal to other photographers, then not only will you have a higher bar to clear, like Eric mentioned, um, if you're, if you're trying to appeal to experts in the field, but also um, you won't necessarily be driven by what sells. You'll be driven by what's best because you're going to want people to learn from you how to make great photographs, you know? So um, I love the freedom that teaching gives me as like a primary source of income. I, I don't really need to worry about what sells, although I take note, you know, there are some photos that the general public on social media really likes and you take note and you're like, okay, that's going to be a good print seller. But I just, I like having that, that freedom. Um, I always think like if Steve Jobs paid attention to what the public wanted and what sells, he would have never made the iPhone. And now it's like yeah, the biggest product ever, but the public didn't know they wanted it. So you know. who's to say that your imagery that is completely unique, um, there's just not a demand for it yet because it doesn't exist yet. So once people start seeing it, you don't know what could happen from that. And that's kind of the hope that I have that, People will see something brand new and they'll get excited instead of just looking for the same old things that they've been hunting for. Yeah, and the, the trend toward intimate landscapes, small scenes, whatever you want to call it, is is cool to me because it's um, it just can be more personal using a telephoto for landscapes. You're, you're walking down the same trail and Alex turns left and I turn right and Eric looks up and they're three different photographs. You know, it's just what you're attracted to but it's um, what you're attracted to not just what the scene looks like yeah and it's it goes back to that getting people to um, in terms of teaching to follow those instincts mm-hmm. not just getting inundated with instagram photos but you know which ones really ring true to to them and you know pursuing it to a certain level they want to try to live up to a certain standards they see out there and they, they think there's a formula and, I, and you know, they're the formula. I love that. That's You bring up a good point because I think oftentimes, especially when we're newer at, in photography, we chase what we see other people liking on social media. And, you know, that's a good, good way to learn. Like we've talked about on this podcast before, but I think if, I don't know. I think if you want to stay in it for the long term and get personal satisfaction, I think what you just described, Bill, is probably going to be a, a richer recipe for success. Yeah, I think uh, 
if you're looking to stick around for a long time, the best thing you can do is just be yourself. And like Alex mentioned earlier, organically build that audience that is going to want to support you. They're going to want to buy your work because they genuinely connect with it. And not, not to try to be like a trendsetter or anything like that, but you know, if you're always being personal, no one's ever going to be able to do that better than you can because no one's going to think the way you do before you actually do. Well said. Yeah, so willingness in, in, a, in the long run, uh, you know, to take tangents too. And, and for me, uh, teaching can often be that way. The, the class I was telling you about, uh, Better Photo Online course, you know, I had students sending in uh, intentional camera motion images, and I'd never done it. And then uh, I was very intrigued, and they were doing a very good job of it. They had, they had other instructors who were active with it, and it got me going. And uh, it was exciting in the sense that I discovered a whole path that I, I spent a couple of years doing that. And I, and I did it, you know, with a lot of focus and intention because I, I saw a lot of good work out there in that kind of genre, uh, ICM type of work. I didn't see, and I asked around the pros that I knew doing it, nobody had like a substantial body of work of it. They had, oh, here's, you know, five photographs I took, you know, over the last 10 years. And so, you know, taking the, the chance to you know, immerse myself in it. Uh, one time I was taking my kids, when they, my family, when my kids were little, to Death Valley, and, and uh, I was busy packing up the car, and I forgot my tripod. So guess what kind of photographs I took the whole trip in Death Valley? So, ICM stuff. I'll be telling that story again, Alex. Yeah. Head out of Death Valley. Death Valley, yeah. Yeah, all right. Nice. So well, I think, well, Matt's question I feel like we may have gone a little off the rails there, but your question was what again? That it was about curation. Oh, it was no, it was about uh, external and internal influences. Oh right? yeah, I yeah, think about it could be summed stuff. up in in terms of just uh, follow whatever interests you, because then you'll make the work that you care about rather than work you feel obliged to make because it's going to sell. Yeah, wherever that yeah. takes you, it'll bring you success if you are genuine about it or authentic. Yeah. And I mean, like the more, uh, I guess, esoteric it is, yeah, maybe it's not going to connect with the largest audience, but the people that do connect with it, they're going to connect with it very deeply because there's nothing else like that. And they're going to want to spend thousands of dollars to print it large, or they're going to be much more willing to support you financially than somebody that just kind of lukewarm connects with it, you know? I think the greatest form of connection with a photograph is scrolling by it on Instagram and double tapping on the way by. <laughs> See it for about a half a second. That's all we yeah. can really hope to achieve. But you're following your instincts, so you, you know what you like. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't don't forget to share it as a story, Alex. But I want to tell a quick story <laughs> in terms of curating. The, um, as you guys have seen the retrospective book, you know, it has different chapters with different types of work in it. And uh, those things developed over many years. And so when I talked about the uh, talk to the publisher, I just I had my ebooks, which had which were uh, about some of those tangents. I already had the bodies of work. And so it was a, a natural way to build the chapters based on themes that were were not developed for the, the book, but already, you know, well thought out and, and developed over many years. I thought it was interesting that 
Antarctica had an entire section of the book because I don't really think of that when I think of your work. I think Yosemite, you know, it yeah. feels like a tangent to me for sure. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. I mean, it was five days. It was just, it was, it was really an important trip for me. And, and, um, you know, I don't think it, it lessens the book in any way. I know. I mean, the, the editing oh, of the book, not. the editing of the book was, um, mostly in my control, but not totally. And, and, the the editor actually cut short the um, the impressionistic section. He thought my tree photographs didn't live up to the whatever Bari had in his head. So, you know, that happens. Unless Art you self-publish. Right? Yeah. Well, that's exactly. why my Yosemite book's going to be self-published. Put yeah. as many trees in there as I want. That's right. Exactly. That's That was the biggest reason for me. Like, I could... Because maybe the publisher would think the quality is fine and I'm not happy with it because I know how my images are supposed to look, but maybe they have a much more flexible range of, you know, how colors can shift or how it can be darker or lighter or contrast, things like that. I knew that if I self-published it, I could determine the acceptable quality for myself. And also I could put whatever I wanted in there. I could write whatever I wanted. I didn't have to please anybody else before I could no, I didn't have to like pass it by anyone in order to be able to release it. I didn't have to make any kind of compromise in any kind of way. Well, Eric, I imagine putting together a book like that uh, took a lot of effort in terms of cre creativity. I know I heard you say like you just it came to you and you just kept writing and writing and writing. But I was hoping maybe we could talk a little bit about creative blocks because I know, Alex, we've talked a little bit about some creative blocks you've had recently on the road and you know, I know writing books and formulating projects and all that can be really challenging to sustain creatively. What are some ways in which each of you approach creative blocks uh, when they happen to you? Uh, William? Let, let it be. They, they happen. You have to accept it. And, and, you know, if you're true to yourself, you know, and, and you're engaged in the world at all, you're going to, you're going to find something that inspires you eventually. And, uh, you know, sometimes deadlines force you to, to make some decisions and, and that's okay. But uh, generally, I, I've been at it so long and I people, that's a good question. And I like I was saying uh, earlier, I haven't photographed since May, except with my iPhone. And uh, and that's okay. I have other things going on and uh, various reasons. You know, it's been smoky. Oh, I should go up to the park and it's all smoked out. You know, just things like that. And I, 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 I'm not worried about it. I do. I think about it. It's not like I got to get out and photograph. I do think that. I do feel that. But I'm also, at my age, pretty damn selective. <laughs> so it better be, uh, you know, inspirational. And there's, I have a lot of things around my house I photograph. And summer is pretty, you know, it's 103 outside. I'm not out photographing much. So the plum tree is passed and the irises have stopped blooming. And that, you know, there's different things that come along in my neighborhood that, that I can photograph locally. Um, but let it be kind to yourself and, and let it pass and just keep your eyes open, engage with the world every day and you'll get inspired. I think when anybody has like their first severe creative block, it can be really scary because you don't know if it's ever going to come back again. You might think like, wow, I had all these ideas and inspiration and I thought I was really going somewhere. And now I've just kind of hit a dead end and I have no idea where to go from here. And I don't know if that will ever come to me. But after years and years of doing photography, you realize that it always comes back. 
it never just disappears forever. If you've genuinely ever had that inspiration and that fire inside of you, it's never just going to disappear forever and not come back ever again. So you kind of, at first you kind of have some anxiety about it, which can make it worse because it becomes this kind of feedback loop where you're not inspired and then you get anxious because you're not inspired. And then that anxiousness makes it harder to be inspired because you're not relaxed, you're not confident, and you slowly kind of go down this slippery slope, just making it worse for yourself. So once you become a bit more comfortable after having a few years under your belt, maybe, or other things that could make you more confident, you just kind of learn, like Bill said, to just be kind to yourself and you kind of just wait it out. And a lot of times, if you just don't resist it at all, it can go away after just a couple weeks. Sometimes it'll be a couple months, but um, you always know the waves are going to come again. Sometimes they're tidal waves and there's nothing for a while. Sometimes you have these constant little, you know, one foot waves coming in one after another. Um, it, it just comes in waves. It doesn't come constantly. It's up and down. And I think accepting that makes it a lot easier because it removes that stress that can just make it worse for yourself. I was going to make the same or a similar analogy with water. It ebbs and flows for sure. Um, I was fortunate enough to not really have lost any desire to photograph for the first maybe nine years I did photography. Like it was really solid. And then uh, over in 2020, over the pandemic, I mean, surely that had something to do with it. Um, and even into this year, I had like a good 18 months of feeling very down on my ability to create and the amount that I was creating or not not creating and, and uh, didn't feel inspired to shoot at all. Um, I felt depressed, probably because of other things going on in the world, too, and just feeling locked down and all sorts of things went into it. But um, I just yeah, it was scary. Like even after establishing myself and having a career in photography and, and this following and community and, and like, I still thought, well, have I lost it? Like, can I even get back into this or am I just pretending now? Like, am I just coasting on my previous success? And, um, I made a few photos that I really like in 2020, but only a few. And, and um, it was a pretty light year in terms of overall production. And then even this year, we're in August, it's tomorrow, September, and I have 18 photos on my website or 15, something like that from this year. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that it's all returned. My fire has returned, like my inspiration has returned, but summer is my least favorite season by far. And I'm really just waiting for fall. I like to enjoy being outside. I don't like being hot. Like I, I don't, I can't photograph when I'm uncomfortable. I don't want to be thinking about how uncomfortable I am. I want to just like feel inspired by the weather, the temperature, everything. Like I want to, I want to be able to immerse myself in it. So yeah, I think this fall will be very productive. Yeah, I think planning is part of it too. When you're, if like for myself, you know, summer is kind of a downtime for me. Then, you know, I know I'm going to be in Yosemite Valley of teaching, and and I'll get revved back up again. You know, so I'm not not worried about it, but um, it just has something you have to write out. Yeah, and I've I've been through periods before of like inactivity on social media. Like I know that I could have a much larger following if I was active on there every day, but sometimes I I go like three months between posts, and it's not. It's probably that I'm 
just not feeling terribly inspired or that I just don't feel like I have anything new to share. Like I could just repost something that I've already posted before, but well, what I know, you have to say, feel inspired. You know, you, you know where you're going in the fall. So that's, you know, you, you, that's where planning comes in. I'm going to be here and here and, and, you know, it's going to be awesome. So you gotta, yeah. You I'm, I'm super excited. Things to be coming. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to know that no matter who you are, how talented you are, these uh, these kind of breaks are going to happen. And I think they're necessary so you can recharge, yeah. get new ideas. And honestly, I feel like every time I have a creative block where, say, I kind of hate all of my work and I'm kind of just not happy with the stuff that I have, my portfolio just it doesn't feel exciting anymore. Um, those are actually moments of growth. So they actually precede these times of growth because you kind of get fed up doing the same routine, um, kind of following a formula that you were doing subconsciously, you become aware of those things. And you it kind of a lot of times it pushes me to just branch out in a completely different direction and explore something completely different within nature photography, different kind of subject matter, maybe I'll buy a new lens. Um, like right now, I'm doing a completely different project than I've ever done before. Um, not because I was having a creative block, but just kind of there was, you know, there's external things right now, like the pandemic still going on. It, f- photography isn't as easy as it was. Um, conditions haven't been great either. It's been smoky the entire summer. Like I have a sinus infection right now from all that. Um, I've just been kind of staying inside and I found a, a different kind of thing that I can do with photography now, despite those, um, exterior circumstances that are making it harder. But a lot of times like that kind of gets me excited when I kind of feel dissatisfied in my work. I know that growth is coming. It's kind of like growing pains that you have to go through. And uh, creative blocks don't mean you're going backwards. A lot of times I think they mean you're moving forwards and you're becoming aware. You're looking at your work more objectively and you're becoming more aware of uh, maybe what you haven't been doing or what you could do better instead of being um, so attached to it. Yeah, I think I think uh, <clears throat> there's this kind of pervasive notion that in order to get past a creative block, all you would have to do is pull out your camera and just go do it, right? But I've found that especially if you're in if you're falling into these sorts of cycles where you're like following a formula subconsciously or just kind of doing the same thing and you're not really as inspired or being as creative. Um, that if you were out shooting every day, then you'd probably stay in that pattern, but I find the times when I don't shoot, I still grow a lot as a photographer because I never stop thinking about it. I'm always thinking about it and I'm always formulating new ideas on what I think is good or, uh, about my own work or, or not so good or what I want to do or what do I want to avoid. And, and maybe I get inspired seeing some new things from other people. And like, I feel like you can grow a lot without even doing it because it's all a mental game. All of photography is in your head. So I mean, once you learn how to operate the camera and and if you can be reasonably physically capable to be where you want to be, then then it's all in your head after that. And so you can grow without pulling, pushing the shutter, you know? Well, I know my dad was a journalist and he, when I started to write my columns, the outdoor photographer, you know, he would say, you know, just if you're stuck, just start writing. And don't edit yourself. Don't try to make it perfect. Just put ideas down if they're just words and phrases and, you know, whatever comes to mind. 
just let it flow. And he, you know, worked a lot on deadlines, and I, I had deadlines for the column, so I had to try to adjust to that. Fortunately, the editors were very forgiving because I was often late for my for my submissions. But uh, I think that can work photographically too. I, I think I wrote a column about this too, uh, where you know being prepared to be inspired. So sometimes people, you know, when they're not feeling it, just don't bring the camera. And if you go, what what do I like to do? Not photographically, I, I want to go to the river. And so like at one time I went up to the river and I was, uh, we were meeting up with uh, Claudia and Michael and we just went to a beach along the river and it was just to be in the river, you know, but the camera was along and I'm wading around the river and all these, all these great ripples, you know, just lit me up, you know, okay, I'll, I'll see you guys. I'm going back, going back to the car and come back down and uh, if I don't hear you, it's because I'm immersed, you know, in, in photographing ripples. So, you know, it's uh, it's being prepared and, and just making sure you're, you know, just enjoy life. Go go take a hike and, and uh, you know, be ready for it to come. Yeah, be yeah. open. Be open to it. I think I think everybody needs a break every now and again. And so... During creative blocks, I wouldn't suggest trying to force it and just trying to create pictures to try to kind of push through it because I think that can just frustrate you more. But like Bill said, that's also my approach. Even if I don't feel like doing photography, I'm going through a phase where I'm not excited about photography. I still always love nature. I love being outside. I love camping. I love backpacking. So I'll keep doing trips, even though I feel like I'm in a creative block and I'll just bring my camera but I'm not going with the intention to take photographs. There's no pressure to create photographs. And a lot of times, just like Bill said, I'll see something that's so remarkable or something brand new that I've never seen before that I can't help but pull my camera out and start creating photographs and feeling inspired again. So a lot of times um, continuing to go out, but without any pressure, which I, I feel like you should do no matter what, you know, as, as best you can to not have pressure or expectations, um, that can kind of set the stage to receive inspiration again and be inspired by nature, which is you hopefully take pictures of nature because you love it. You connect with that subject and that's why you photograph it. So even though your love for photography might die off or dwindle, your love for nature should always be there and that can continue to inspire you if you continue to interact with it. Yeah. And if you're, if you're backpacking far from the car, you know, you don't, may not do it the way I do it, but I, I often will leave my camera in the car and go, walk down to the river and just see just because I want to be there. And uh, often I'm doing that with a student. I said, well, I'm not going to haul my camera around. I'm going to uh, help them with their, their efforts. And, you know, I get them going on, on some subject, ice or something like that, ripples, whatever it is. And then I find something, you know, just too good to ignore. And I'm, I excuse myself and run back to the car and come back to the camera. And then I show them what I'm up to and, and we riffed off each other. I, I've, I've been turned on to uh, a number of different great situations by you know, people I'm teaching. And they're teaching me, and that's it's vital in teaching it to consider it a two-way street. Yeah, a lot of times by teaching somebody, bringing them to a place that they've never seen before, it helps you see it with brand new eyes because you see their excitement. You kind of relive um, your initial experience that you had seeing it for the first time. Like, kind of, You kind of vicariously 
get excited again through their experience. And you might have formed some sort of expectations or like, oh, I already know this. I know everything there is to do there. Like you, you might not be open to things that they will see. So yeah, it's like going to tunnel view and, and seeing epic conditions and not photographing because I just can't do it. It's just too exciting. Whether it's breaks any new ground in the world of fine art from inspiration point or not, it's, it's uh, epic to experience. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I want to shift this over to our last topic, um, which is the idea of legacy. You know, books are a fantastic way to leave behind a legacy. How important is it for each of you to leave a legacy behind? And what does that look like to you? Well, maybe I'll go first uh, since I've been around for a long time. And, and um, I can tell you that my photography in whatever form, you know, is I'm very comfortable with and feel like I have left something behind, especially the books. But, you know, people have prints on their walls, you know, and that's uh, you know, sharing myself with, with those people. And that's, you know, that's why we, we've been talking all along here about you know, the experience. And that's how we share it through our photographs. And that's, uh, you know, if I don't do any more books, that's, you know, I feel like I've, I've left something valuable behind. A couple of my first books, my first book was illustrating a book by Rachel Carson. And, you know, to be in the book was probably the least control I ever had over a book. Every photograph is crop square. I didn't select the photographs at all. And, but it illustrates a powerful piece of writing by a great uh, natural history writer. And it, you know, went into nine printings and my photographs illustrated those powerful words. And, you know, it's not that great a book in terms of the photographs. Uh, but they are illustrative of, you know, the mood of the book. And, and so that, that's a, a nice thing to feel. In those kinds of collaborations, like Alex was showing the Yosemite book, you know, the, when I look at that book, I, I almost value the writing more than my photographs because it's a, a powerful piece of writing about taking better care of Yosemite. And, you know, it's a photo book, so I know hopefully a lot of people read the text too, but, um, I'm not real thrilled with the final image selection, but I know the writing has, you know, communicated something about uh, taking care of the uh, national park by Yosemite. I guess for me, when I think of leaving behind some kind of legacy, I don't really think of the legacy of Eric Bennett. It's more um, what I would like to leave behind is kind of a philosophy or the message that I'm trying to promote rather than the messenger. Um, I hope that I can leave behind a greater appreciation for wild places and that my photographs can continue to teach future generations after I'm gone, the importance of these places and why we need them and why it's worth everything that we have to sacrifice in order to um, keep them around and keep them protected and, I just think more of my photography becoming popular rather than myself as a person, because it's really just always been more about the message rather than myself or trying to elevate the way people see me or anything like that. I'm just trying to elevate the way that people see nature and I'm trying to help them connect with it more. And so, yeah, with my books and everything, I I hope they can stick around to hopefully continue to teach people and um, impact them so 
they they can feel a desire to go outside and create their own relationship, have their own conversations with nature. And I mean, I hope other photographers will do the same after I'm gone. Like I don't really see it as me by myself or anything. Um, I'm part of something much larger than myself. And I think a lot of other people are going to leave behind a legacy that's going to do the same thing as well. So I'm just grateful to be a part of that. Yeah, I think that's an important part of, you know, what we leave behind is not so much the photographs, but how it changes people's perceptions and appreciation. I've had a few occasions where like a photograph of mine was in somebody's hospital room while they were recovering, a long recovery. And and I get letters, you know, about how much, you know, that patient waking up every day, seeing that soothing photograph of a waterfall helped them through a tough personal time. So, you know, that just, that seals the deal. It's all BS after that. <laughs> Alex? Um, I, I don't know what to say about what people would, would care to remember about my work when I'm gone. But uh, I do know that the reason I haven't done a book so far is because I didn't feel that I had the portfolio for it, like at least a cohesive selection of images. I feel like I'm finally getting to that point. Um, but I, I know that books are sort of forever in that like anything on my website, I can go change it. Right. But once the book is printed, that's what it's going to be forever, unless you do another edition, but there'll still be hundreds of that first edition out there. And, and uh, it's, we were talking about the tangibility of it. Like I'd really, like to leave behind more than a website you know i'd like uh i'd like for someone to have a memento of something that i i I don't it's not about ego like i don't it's not about well i hope you remember alex noriega because he was so great but like i spent a lot of time on this photography you know Uh, a lot of effort like basically spending my life on it now so um, I hope that it wasn't for nothing. I hope that it doesn't just fade away like that. I hope that I can leave something tangible that will last. And I think books are a great way to do that. Um, there was some other thought that I had in response to what Eric was saying. Just, um, oh, and, and what Bill was saying, that I think probably the biggest impact I've had is just anyone that I've inspired because I've gotten like emails, countless messages about that over the years. And it's always insane to me that like that someone would, I don't know, change what they're doing and pursue photography or, or just feel inspired to do it at all because they saw my photos. Like I, I'm just a guy, I'm just me. And I'm, I don't, I don't see myself as a, any, anything particularly special, but maybe my photos are all right. And uh, I, I'm really happy if I have inspired anyone to, to take this up for themselves because it's really rewarding in the end to create and explore and, and be with nature and, and appreciate it. So, well, you know, at a certain age, you just need to keep doing the work, you know, and, and when a book comes together in your, in your mind, you know, that's a great thing to do, but you know, it's a, it's a lifelong process. So for me, looking back, it's kind of, it's rewarding. Well, I, I, I won, went off that cliff and, you know, it, it worked out, you know, it's like. But. Yeah. But, at, but at a certain point it becomes, well, at least a lot of things in life for me, it become 
if I were to die next year, like I would be really sad that I didn't do this. So like a book is one of those things. Like if I die young, I hope I've finished a book by then. Uh, same as like hitting the road and, and living the nomadic life. Like I'd be upset if I had just put that off for another several years and then that was it. You know, you got to take advantage of what you have. So whatever you find important, uh, that's definitely one of the things for me. I've got to do it at this point. So, um, I'll say Alex, I'm definitely one of those people that was super inspired by your work when I was first starting out and it totally changed my trajectory. Um, <clears throat> I think it was like maybe a year after I started taking nature photography more seriously, I stumbled upon like your work, uh, Ted Gore's work, TJ Thorne's work. And I was like, I had no idea you can make photographs that look like this. Cause I just, I hadn't seen like any kind of like landscape photography, you know, I'd just seen random snapshots and things like that. And then when I saw stuff like that, that was so finely tuned and so thoughtful, like I remember some of your first images I saw were like your intimate dune scenes where you just have like a few layers with like really nice soft light and you just have like really nice warm and cool color contrast. And I just remember being amazed by that because it was just something that I hadn't even considered and that totally opened my mind to start doing photography the way that I've been doing it now. So definitely, it's definitely a real thing. Your influence. Well, You're an influencer, I, Alex. <laughs> wow. That is offensive. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I have loved watching you so quickly evolve. That's pretty much what my intro is about in the book, by the way. Um, it's just how you've gotten to the point of being so thoughtful about your work and creating such quality work in such a short amount of time. But I really don't, I think that if you're dedicated, it doesn't really take all that long. Um, it's just, you have to get past certain milestones. And uh, I, I mean, you had it's a vision a and you got there. So, yeah. I mean, it's not that you're ever there, but I, I just, yeah, I really like your work. So I'm happy to have played any part in that. Yeah. You just have to put the time in, you know, you when when you, jump off the cliff so to speak and and don't depend on a job then you know you, you are forcing your hand and you but if you can go travel like uh eric did wasn't it some airline situation yeah i used to work for JetBlue, so i could yeah, right, fly right. around for free so you know those things come along in life and you jumped on it and so uh not everybody has that kind of time to pour into it but uh, when you do you can do great things that certainly accelerated my journey having a lot of time because I was self-employed the entire time I've been doing photography. I've, I've basically had the luxury of doing it as much as I want at any time. Um, I quit working for bosses two years before I picked up a camera. So, um, and yeah, now 95% of the listeners are now just jealous. Well, I, I forgot. I, uh, I just, I appreciate that, that a lot of people are trying to learn and grow as photographers on the weekend, basically, you know, they have nine to five jobs and I appreciate that they even have the energy to do it because I swear to God, if I worked 40 hours a week, I wouldn't do anything else. I wouldn't do a single other thing, <laughs> but you don't even, you don't even wake up for sunrise uh, without a 40 hour a week job. <laughs> I, I, can I can verify that. Well, I have to be excited. Okay. Matt and I just went backpacking. I lugged my camera along, which I just, I just brought my camera to see a place. I didn't actually do any photography out there and I didn't think that I would, but, um, 
I think I will be waking up for sunrise in the southwest this fall, believe it or not, a few times. I just have to know that I can sleep later in the day. I value I'll believe my sleep. it when I see it. Come on out. We'll see. Well, gentlemen, this has been really fun. And, yeah. uh, um, we'll talk later about uh, some ways in which maybe you guys can promote some of the things we've talked about on the show, and I can put them in the show notes for people to check out, like your book, Eric, and Bill, your, your, your courses and other books that you have coming out as well, and Alex, your videos and whatnot, and maybe this imaginary book that might appear someday. Match. It's happening. Yeah. It's the, gauntlet, it's happening. the gauntlet has been thrown down. I have a couple of people, experts in the field, to consult with. That's right. That's right. Well, <laughs> thanks bummed. again for for um, spurring this on for us, Eric. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm glad it worked out. Yeah, thanks, a good idea, uh, Alex and Bill. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, thank you to William, Alex, and Eric for joining me on the podcast this week. If you found our conversation useful, you can get even more from all three of our guests, and it is a great way to support our fellow photographers. Look to the show notes for some links. First up, since we talked a lot about curation, you should check out William's book, The Photographer's Portfolio Development Workshop, Learn to Think in Themes, Find Your Passion, Develop Depth, and Edit Tightly. Second, in addition to supporting Eric by purchasing his incredible book, you can also save money on his excellent post-processing videos with 20% off using the discount code FSTOP20. Lastly, I'm always happy to recommend the great post-processing videos that Alex has produced. You can watch him edit some of his most well-known images and learn a lot about fine-tuning your images. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.